What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. I'm Josh Hammer. Welcome back. We will be joined shortly by Harry Enton, a longtime friend of mine. Harry is a frequent on-air polling and political analyst for CNN. You know, if you're a right-leaning member of the audience, don't run away. Harry is right down the middle. He is one of the last remaining true, objectively neutral people in the commentary business. So we're going to get Harry's thoughts on all of the races across the country that matter as we gear up for this monumental midterm election cycle. Before we get to Harry, though, this is a huge week, huge week at the United States Supreme Court. And we had Mike Davis on the show recently. We were talking about the big upcoming cases that the court is hearing this term and that will be decided this term. Well, as the case may be, on October 31st, on Monday, the court heard the two SFFA cases, the two affirmative action cases involving Harvard University and the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Those being against, of course, a private school and a public school, respectively, and they granted certain agrees to hear these two cases because the 14th Amendment only arguably uh, pertains to the public school, not the private school, but the Title VI statutory equivalent of no, uh, uh, the, the, the Title VI proscription of of considering race when it comes to to admissions and university-related decisions clearly applies statutorily to both schools. So what are we going to see from this case? Well, I am cautiously optimistic about this case. Potentially, and this is probably reckless, but potentially even not cautiously optimistic, potentially just straight-up optimistic. Because if you look going back 15 years, this is maybe the one culturally salient issue where the Chief Justice John Roberts, who was no longer the fifth vote, but in the aftermath of Amy Coney Barrett's successful confirmation in late 2020, is now the sixth vote. He himself actually has been a longtime stalwart on this issue. It was the Parents Involved case out of Seattle, Washington in 2007, where John G. Roberts, who was then a much younger Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, said a line that is probably to this day his most iconic bit of writing that he has ever put into the United States recorder, or the United States reporter. And he said, quote, the way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. It was a very, very powerful line. In fact, it was just over a week ago that I was at the Florida gubernatorial debate here where I live in the, in the free state of Florida between the incumbent Governor Ron DeSantis and challenger and former Governor Charlie Crist. And when the topic came up of critical race theory, racialist indoctrination in elementary schools, Ron DeSantis actually quoted that line verbatim. It was, very, it was a very powerful rhetorical move, I thought. So to get back to the current cases before the court that we heard all our arguments from on Monday, you know, reading the tea leaves that, 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 that I have seen about folks who actually listen to the entirety of the oral argument, which I have not done yet, it seems like this is going to be good. And I would be shocked if it doesn't. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because affirmative action, the deliberate use and consideration of race to 
try to socially construct and affect the racial composition of higher education institutions is blatantly, avowedly, and unequivocally racist. That is why this matters. That fundamentally is why this matters. Now, the telos, the fundamental substantive orientation of the American constitutional order originally in the Declaration of Independence in 1776, the 14th Amendment of 1868, and the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. The orientation of the American experiment has always been towards equality, not equity in the Ibram X. Kendi sense. We are all equal under the law as far as what we are owed from government, as far as our fundamental inherent rights before governments, ultimately before our creator, God Almighty himself. That does not mean that the government is legitimate and private institutions are legitimate to try to play the role of some higher power and try to discriminate against people to try to construct a nice, balanced, diverse student body. This is deeply, deeply noxious, noxious stuff. And, you know, in the Grutter versus Bollinger case of 2003, which was the last time that the Supreme Court cleanly upheld affirmative action, there was a University of Texas litigation with Fisher in the middle of the last decade. But in Grutter versus Bollinger, Sandra Day O'Connor famously said that, you know, 25 years from now, paraphrasing, maybe this will no longer be good. Well, let's make it 19 years from now, 20 years from now, by the time this June comes around, let affirmative action die. It was always misguided, and it is long past time for it to end. God willing, it will do so. Clarence Thomas will write the majority opinion, and it will be absolutely freaking glorious. But let's take it to a quick commercial break. We want to get a deep dive here with our upcoming guest on the elections. That guest is Harry Enton. Stay with us. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So what a treat to bring in here a week from a monumental midterm elections, none other than Harry Enton himself. Harry is a frequent on-air polling and political analyst for CNN. I would have to go back and verify this going guest by guest, but I'm pretty sure I've known Harry for longer than any other guest that we've had on the program so far. We actually kind of debate when we first met. I think it was senior year of high school at an admitted students weekend. He swears he was not there. That's kind of inside baseball, neither here nor there. But for present purposes, Harry Enton, thanks so much for joining us this week. Shalom, my friend. I am glad to be here. Well, we're really thrilled to have you. So we want to spend the bulk of our time together here kind of going race by race, talking about maybe some broader trends. But I just one question out of the gate. You became prolific fairly early on. I mean, by the time you hit 30, I would say that you were already pretty established in kind of the polling analysis niche space, so to speak. 
How did that happen? I mean, kind of like just briefly walk the listeners through that. I mean, you know, you used to do some weather forecasting. So what what was the line from kind of doing your own weather analysis to being kind of an on-air political forecasting contributor? I, I you know, I appreciate the ego boost. Let me tell you, uh, as anyone in journalism can tell you, most of us are extremely down on ourselves and needing the compliments of others to boost us up. So I thank you for that. Uh, look, here's the situation. The situation is pretty simple. The internet changed the whole ball game, right? Uh, I had a blog in college. I sent out a weather email in college. After I graduated from college, uh, I spent six months on my parents' couch. I thought I was a miserable failure. My mother said, keep writing on your blog. Sure enough, uh, The Guardian, which is obviously a paper based in the UK, uh, was making an infiltration into America. Uh, One of the op-ed editors there saw my material, said, hey, you wanna write us a guest piece? I said, Yes. And he said, we can only pay you. I think it said he said, you can only pay us, only pay me like $150. And I said, you're willing to give me $150? <laughs> and uh, I jumped at it, made the piece actually, you know, understandable for the common folk. And uh, from there, it became part-time. Uh, then full-time at The Guardian, was there for a year and a half or so. Uh, full-time, went to 538, which I think most of your listeners will know. Uh, then started at CNN in 2018, was hired as a digital person, but as someone who I think this podcast will indicate likes the sound of his own voice, uh, I forced <laughs> myself onto air uh, and have been appearing on the different programs. And I'd like to say informing and entertaining folks, because let's be real, um, that is something you need to do if you're in media. If you're merely informative and not entertaining, uh, you're probably not going to stick around for very long because there are a lot of people who are one or the other, but not necessarily both. Yeah, it's funny. The one word that I actually use to describe you when you kind of come up in conversation in my political chats and whatnot is the word entertaining. So I'm kind of happy that you use that word. And, you know, look, I've known you since you had just a couple hundred Twitter followers. I used to get that weather email you just alluded to. So I kind of take a bit of pride whenever I see you on air doing great stuff. So, you know, just... Great, great stuff, and thanks again for joining. So let's let's get in on the substance here. So, Harry, I live, as I'm sure you know, in South Florida, and there's been a lot of chatter recently kind of speculating as to whether Governor DeSantis is actually going to outright win Miami-Dade County, which is the most populous county in the state of Florida. It's a 70% Hispanic county. And looking more across the country as well, you kind of look out to Nevada, which has a huge Hispanic population, it's looking very neck and neck potentially as to whether Adam Laxalt and Joe Lombardo in their respective races could actually win the statewide Hispanic vote. It seems like it's going to be close at a bare minimum. We also what happened with Myra Flores down in South Texas in the Rio Grande Valley. So wh- what is happening with the Hispanic vote? Kind of walk listeners through what is actually happening as far as the trajectory of the Hispanic vote and how real is the shift towards the GOP? I mean, the, the shift is real. The question is the magnitude of the shift, right? I, I mean, I don't think there's any doubt. You know, you, you alluded to very many different communities of people that we sort of umbrella under Hispanic, whether it be, sure. you know, in Southeast Florida, a lot of Cubans, uh, whether uh, you're looking down in the Rio Grande Valley, a lot of those Hispanics have been in America longer. Their families have been in America longer than any of us have. Uh, you go out to Nevada, that has traditionally been a strong Democratic group. Uh, there's no doubt in the polling that there has been a shift towards the Republican Party amongst Hispanic voters. Uh, If you look across the polling, you know, it was a pretty decent NBC News Telemundo poll. The the generic congressional ballot had 
uh, Republicans trailing by, I think, a little bit more than 20 points um, amongst them. And what essentially that polling is an indication of is clear movement towards the Republican Party because it was just a few cycles ago where Democrats held a nearly 40-point lead among Hispanic voters. So that's a lead that's been cut in half, my goodness gracious. Um, that being said, in certain Hispanic communities, uh, there has been even a larger movement, right? You look down, we spoke about the Rio Grande Valley. Take a look at Starr County, uh, historically a very Democratic county down in, in Southern Texas, which Hillary Clinton, I believe, won by upwards of 60 points, and Joe Biden won by, I think, only about five. My God. Uh, you know, you look in Southeast Florida, Miami Day was a county that Hillary Clinton won upwards by 30 points. Joe Biden won by less than 10. So when you say there's a question whether Ron DeSantis could outright win Miami Dade, I, I, I would proffer that absolutely is the answer to that question. Uh, there has been clear movement. You know, it's interesting as you look at the long term trend among Cuban voters, where traditionally they've been Republican, then it seemed like younger Cubans were shifting back towards the Democrats. Uh, and now over the last few cycles, we've seen more of that shift. And without me going on and on and on and boring your listeners, I would just say that part of that movement is the movement we've seen, generally speaking, uh, among uh, working class voters, voters without a college degree. We've seen it most among white voters, but obviously we're, we've begun to see it, at least among Hispanic voters, I would argue, arguably among black voters as well. Uh, and, and more than that, you know, as Hispanic voters get sort of situated in the United States, right? And they become first generation, second generation, third generation, and their primary language becomes English instead of Spanish. We know from the polling that that is correlated with them moving towards Republican column. So I think that there's a lot of different things going on uh, in a state like Nevada. Uh, a lot of the Hispanic workers there work in the gaming industry, an uh, industry that was hit hard by COVID. Uh, Republicans obviously wanted to open things up more quickly than Democrats. And I think that, you know, when your economic check is on the line, uh, you may vote in a different fashion. So I think there's a lot of different things that are going on in these different places. Uh, but there's no doubt in my mind that Hispanic voters as a whole have been trending more Republican, though I do still think on the whole that Democrats will carry that vote uh, this November. And I'm happy that you pointed out just how different these various communities are. I, I personally kind of hate this broad brush painting of so-called Hispanic voters, so-called Asian voters. I mean, the latter makes even less sense. I mean, try trying to compare like a Filipino to an Indian to a Korean. I mean, the whole thing is just totally nonsensical. And, you know, even I used to live in Texas for four years. And I remember when I was living there, folks there spoke of the Hispanic community in Texas, kind of the Tejanos there in South Texas, as being qualitatively different in terms of kind of their various customs and various kind of cultural traits from their fellow Hispanics out in kind of California or potentially even Arizona, for example. So I'm happy I'm happy you pointed that out there. But I guess one follow up question as kind of the last question before kind of getting into the horse race stuff is, is this the death knell for the longtime demography is destiny sloganeering that we heard for forever, basically? I mean, from large swaths of kind of the left leaning punditry class. I mean, is the recent polling enough to kind of assuage Republican doubts as to their continued viability as a major party? I, I, I would I never believed it. I always I always feel like where there's, you know, a will to win, there's a way to win. Uh, and essentially being, you know, political parties at, you know, their core are about finding, you know, the coalition to get them over the top. So I never believed in that demography was destiny. I'm not sure this is how I necessarily thought it would play out. Uh, but I would argue it's healthier for the country 
uh, when we certainly have less racial polarization, which we certainly did in uh, 2020. I, I think, you know, the great little factoid, I don't know if that's the correct definition of factoid, the correct usage of factoid, is that the reason Joe Biden won was because the one group of voters who moved more Democratic in 2020 compared to 2016 was white men. Obviously, Trump still carried that vote. Uh, but I think it's a nugget, a little something that your listeners should keep in the back of your mind is that racial polarization as compared to five, six, seven, eight years ago is, is down. And I think the idea that democracy is destiny should uh, go by the wayside if it hasn't already. Yeah. And I think it probably has gone by the wayside already. But that's just that's good to hear your your verification of that sentiment. So let's go into the horse race stuff. So we mentioned Nevada. I guess that's a logical place to start here. That's kind of one of the so-called big four swing states this term, along with Arizona, Pennsylvania, and Georgia. So from my view, and admittedly, I'm on the East Coast, as are you, so you know, we're a little far removed from being on the ground there in Nevada. Uh, I have always thought that Adam Laxalt is a very strong U.S. Senate candidate. And the polling is looking pretty good for Laxalt and Lombardo, but I guess the caveat to that is, if I remember correctly, Nevada's an interesting state insofar as the polling there historically over the past 10, 15 years has sometimes oversampled Republicans, which is a huge contrast to some other states that typically oversample Democrats. So, you know, what are you what are you thinking? What are you seeing as far as it comes to Nevada, which was a very, very, very close state in both the 2016 and 2020 presidential elections? Yeah, so you, you sort of hinted at Nevada's political history, right? It was a state that uh, George W. Bush carried twice. Then Barack Obama carried very easily in his uh, first go around in, in 2008, became tighter in 2012, tighter in 2016, even tighter in 2020 by the uh, thinnest of margins. I think Hillary Clinton won it by like 2.42, and I think Joe Biden won it by 2.39. Uh, I apologize to your listeners if I didn't get those decimal <laughs> points exactly right. You're forgiven. Uh, thank you. Uh, but it's a state that has, compared to the nation as a whole, has actually trended Republican over the last few cycles. And what makes Nevada unique is, first off, I don't think people realize that the white population there is far less likely to have a college degree than in a lot of other swing states. Uh, and obviously, white, vo white voters without a college degree have trended more towards the Republican column. At the same time, it's a state, as you know, we've spoken about, that has a heavy Hispanic population. And we've generally found that, one, obviously, the Hispanic population, in terms of its vote patterns, while still voting uh, Democratic uh, for, in large part, uh, has certainly shifted more Republican. But more than that, when it comes to the polling and understanding whether or not the polling is actually giving us a clear and accurate reading of what's happening on the ground, uh, sometimes Hispanic populations are not polled that well. Um, in fact, that's been something that has occurred in the Southwest and not just in Nevada, but also in California, to some extent, Arizona, heavily Hispanic states, uh, where the polling, uh, as opposed to, say, the upper Midwest or the Great Lakes at large, which has a very large white uh, voter without college degree populations, the polling in the Southwest has actually underestimated Democrats, uh, at least more so than in the Great Lakes or in the Midwest. And so when we look at the polling right now, we see, you know, I'll just concentrate in the Senate race for a little bit, that uh, Laxalt and Catherine Cortez Mastow are basically even as uh, a New York Times poll that has them exactly, even that generally matches the average. Uh, that's one of the best polling situations for Republicans. And we can sort of get into this, what I argue the most four important Senate races, Arizona, Georgia, uh, Nevada, Pennsylvania. But the question is, is that a fagazi? Is that real? Uh, Laxalt has one thing going for him that a lot of these other Republican Senate candidates don't, 
and that is he's actually won statewide before. Uh, let's take it to a quick break. We'll be right back with Harry Enton. Stay with us. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So let's just go next door then from the Silver State to the Grand Canyon State. So two competitive races there as well. You've got the Senate race, which we've discussed on this show a little bit in the past. That's pitting the incumbent Mark Kelly, a very well-funded Democratic incumbent, uh, an astronaut in case you weren't aware. He kind of says that a lot <laughs> against yeah. uh, the up and coming, uh, you know, Peter Thiel oriented Republican challenger, Blake Masters. And of course, you've got this gubernatorial race between Carrie Lake and Katie Hobbs. So I, I guess it looks to me like Carrie Lake is starting to pull away here. I, I kind of question whether Katie Hobbs's decision to not debate Carrie Lake might have actually kind of backfired in her face a little bit. What are, what are you seeing there in Arizona as between those two races? Yeah, I think that Arizona is indicative of something we've seen across the map, which is, you know, in this era of highly polarized politics in which you're either a Democrat or Republican, and the swing vote is kind of sh- is sort of shrinking. There are fewer and fewer swing voters. These races are so close that there are a number of states where one party may win the governorship and one party may win the Senate race. And Arizona is one of those states. Uh, you know, if you look at the gubernatorial polling, Carrie Lake uh, is pretty much in every single poll does better than Blake Masters. Pretty much every single poll. It's not everyone, but pretty much everyone. And why is that? Why is that? I think there are a few reasons why. Number one, although in an era uh, in which incumbency matters less than it has traditionally, uh, Mark Kelly is an incumbent. Um, I would also make the argument that Mark Kelly has carved out a political brand onto himself. You you mentioned, you know, uh, the fact that he's an astronaut. Obviously, his uh, wife is Gabby Giffords, who is a congresswoman who uh, survived an assassination attempt uh, over a decade ago. You look at the gubernatorial race and Carrie Lake is someone who's well known statewide. You know, she's a former television star, a television news anchor. Uh, you know, Democrats and Republicans can argue about whether Carrie Lake is too extreme. Obviously, she's someone who uh, denies the fact that Joe Biden legitimately won the 2020 election, which uh, I should let your listeners know. I do believe that Joe Biden legitimately won the 2020 election. And most Americans agree on that. Um, but the idea essentially being that Carrie Lake knows how to present herself, knows how to, you know, essentially act in the age of television and in the age of the internet in which everything's posted online. And, and Katie Hobbs, uh, as you hinted at, uh, has refused to, um, debate. And while she has her reasons for that, I think it's ultimately backfired. I think if you're a political candidate, you want to be seen more often than not, uh, there are a few candidates, perhaps that isn't the case. Uh, but I, I think that Mark Kelly has a lot of things going for him 
that Katie Hobbs simply doesn't. Now, look, it may be that in this era of highly polarized politics that the two races kind of collapse onto each other. Maybe both Democrats win, maybe both Republicans win. But I think at this particular point, you know, it could very well be that Mark Kelly wins by two or three and Kerry Lake wins by two or three. Uh, but it's Arizona is a fascinating state, you know, with the Phoenix suburbs have really become more blue over the last uh, few cycles. The Hispanic vote, very important in the state of Arizona. Um, and let's not forget the American Indian vote uh, in the uh, if I'm recalling my Arizona map uh, correctly uh, in the eastern part of that state, uh, specifically the northeastern part of that state um, is important to Democratic fortunes as well. So Arizona is a very unique sort of map. And even though, you know, it's right next to Nevada, uh, sometimes acts a little politically differently. Okay, so that's actually exactly what I want to follow up on. So I, I, I'm, I'm having a hard time understanding this because the Hispanic polling that I've seen in Nevada really is looking quite good for Laxalt and Lombardo, those being the two Republican candidates in the Senate and governor races, respectively. And, you know, I'm not going to say they're, I'm not going to predict that they're going to outright win the statewide Hispanic vote in Nevada, but it looks like it's going to be pretty close. So I would think that Carrie Lake and Blake Masters, based on that, I mean, unless the Arizona Hispanic population is that different, I mean, there's a decently large Mormon population in both states. Uh, is Blake Masters just a flawed candidate from your perspective? I'm just trying to figure it out a little more. Yeah, I, I do think, I mean, look, Blake Masters has never won statewide. Uh, Blake Masters is uh, somebody, if you look at the polling, his net favorability rating has consistently been negative. That's as favorable minus as unfavorable. Uh, so just based upon that, you would make the argument that Blake Masters is a flawed candidate. That being said, you know, look, whenever you get in a polling of specific demographic groups, depending on the sample sizes, you know, you may sort of be misled a little bit. All that said, I think you could paint a picture whereby the economic situation in Nevada is different than the economic situation in Arizona. And maybe the Hispanic vote in each of those states will act differently, um, behave differently, vote differently. Uh, so, look, there's a painting that we could sort of paint or a picture that we could draw in which the Hispanic vote may act differently in both of those states. Uh, but it could also just be that maybe the polling is wrong in one of those states. I mean, that's, well, fair enough. that's possible as well. No, totally fair enough. And, you know, full disclosure, um, you know, Blake Masters is also someone who I'm a huge fan of. I've defended him on this show before. And, um, you know, I, I, I am openly rooting for him. So I hope that he prevails in, in that particular case. Wait a minute. You're openly rooting for Republican candidate, Josh. <laughs> Shock. Uh, my God. This, 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 is, this, is, this is shocking. <laughs> I know I, I, I know it's going to be absolutely brutal for the listeners of this program to hear that I had that I have some dogs in the fight, so to speak, just as far as who I am rooting for and the, and the, and the composition of the U.S. Senate come January 2023. But, Harry, let's let's move east eastward. So you alluded to the big four states this cycle. We've done the two out west. So we still have the two in the east, those being the states of Georgia and Pennsylvania. Let's start in Georgia. Georgia has really become kind of ground zero, honestly. I mean, it's kind of fascinating to me. I grew up, you grew up thinking of Georgia as kind of a solidly Republican state, a, a very kind of culturally Southern state. But the demographic shifts in the Atlanta in the Atlanta suburbs have just been absolutely enormous. Over the past decade or so, we saw the incredibly thin margins of the 2020 Senate runoffs there. And between Herschel Walker, Raphael Warnock, Stacey Abrams, the whole David Perdue, Brian Kemp drama, as far as kind of Donald Trump's endorsement and all that. I mean, Georgia has really just become ground zero for political theater in America. So what are you what are you seeing there in the Senate race between Warnock and Herschel Walker and then in the in the gubernatorial race between Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams? In the, in the latter camp, it seems to me like Brian Kemp is certainly pulling away at this point, I would say. I would argue Brian Kemp has consistently been ahead. 
you know, it's very difficult to make the case that Brian Kemp is in the back pocket of Donald Trump. Um, and that is something, you know, that I think if you look at a state like Georgia, white college voters um, in those Atlanta suburbs, there's a lot of room for growth for Democrats. They did not like Donald Trump. And Brian Kemp, of course, basically told Donald Trump to kick it down the road and see you later when it came to the certification of the Georgia vote in 2020 for president. And I think that's helped him significantly uh, keep a number of white voters with a college degree in the Republican camp. You look at the polling in Georgia has consistently showed Kemp ahead, not by, you know, 20 points, but by somewhere between five to 10 points. Uh, and I, you know, of all the Senate, all the gubernatorial races th that we've sort of discussed so far, that is the one in which I would feel the most confident in saying that Brian Kemp uh, would the Republican candidate would in fact win. I think Stacey Abrams, while she is well regarded nationally among Democrats, you know, we've spoken about candidates with negative net favorability ratings, and those have been on the Republican side, not in the gubernatorial race in the state of Georgia. Her net favorability rating in Georgia is negative. Uh, and I think that might have something to do with how she reacted to the 2018 gubernatorial vote, right? right. The, the language that she has used, um, which I think a lot of Republicans would argue is how, how can the press say that, you know, you know, come, come up with some language about Donald Trump on the 2020 vote and the certification there and then say something different when it comes to Stacey Abrams in the 2018 vote. Now, there are obviously differences, right, with the two, the way they two have behaved. But certainly in terms of uh, sowing doubt within the electoral process, I think both of them have done something to that degree. Uh, and I think it's hurt Abrams uh, with the general electorate. And then, of course, uh, Brian Kemp is an incumbent as well. And I, I do think that that helps. Right. How about the Senate race? Um, I mean, that's, you know, that, that race has been, I think, upended by all of the recent allegations pertaining to Herschel Walker. Raphael Warnock does not necessarily seem to have a saintly history. Is obviously the allegations that he ran over his ex-wife's foot in a, in a peak of rage and things of that nature there. And, you know, it seemed to me like Herschel Walker held his own in the one debate that the two candidates had there. It's going to be it's going to be a tight race, though, don't you think? Oh, it's going to absolutely be a tight race. So the way, you know, you, you judge a uh, debate is whether or not you're still talking about it a week later. And I don't recall anybody still ta talking about the Georgia Senate uh, debate a week later. And that's usually how most debates are. Very few debates actually make news, although they are fun to watch oftentimes, at least when you don't have a horse in the race or if your kid is doing ridiculously well. <laughs> um, but look, that's a very tight race. Uh, I, I think we have, you know, there has been a lot of what I would call partisan polls entering in Georgia. These are Republican aligned pollsters uh, that may sort of skew our view of the race. But look, that race at this point looks like it's going to be decided by a few points either way. Uh, you know, it's a tough state for Democrats, right? Uh, it's a state that Joe Biden won by the right. thinnest of margins of any of the states that he won. Yeah, I, 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 Harry, sorry, sorry to jump in. I guess the question that I keep on coming back to, it's, it seems to me like split taking is just an increasingly outmoded phenomenon. So, I mean, I have to think, you know, you said maybe Carrie Lake wins by two to three points. I don't know. I mean, if she wins by four to five and then a Brian Kemp wins by the margin that he's currently ahead of in the polls, like potentially as high as six to seven, does it, don't you think that's going to drag across both Blake Masters and Herschel Walker? Yeah. It could. It could. Uh, I, I don't doubt that phenomenon. It definitely could. Uh, I think the question is ultimately in a state like Georgia, you know, how many white voters with a college degree in the suburbs of Atlanta are willing to go along 
uh, with Herschel Walker, despite his ties to Trump, despite obviously, we'll just say, messy history. Uh, there are a lot of different adjectives we could use to describe it. Here's the other thing I'll no- note about Georgia. There are two other things I'll note. One is uh, the black vote in Georgia. So important, you know, about a third of the electorate. Uh, if you look at some of the polling, Abrams has certainly not been doing as well among black voters as she did four years ago, while Warnock seems to be more than holding his own among them. Uh, and here's the other thing about Georgia. It takes a majority to win. It takes a majority right. to win. Otherwise, you have a runoff in December. And right now, neither of the candidates are hitting that majority threshold. Chase right. Oliver, who's the libertarian candidate, could get 2 3% of the vote. And I just proffer what would happen in a runoff in December if the Senate is on the line. Does that help Walker? Does that help Warnock? Uh, especially if Republicans win the House. And then it's sort of like, okay, how much of a check do we really want on the president? Right. I think there are a lot of questions to sort of be answered in that. But I think you're right. Look, I don't think we're going to be looking at, you know, if Brian Kemp wins by 10, 11 points, which is certainly plausible, uh, that I think would be awfully difficult for Raphael Warnock to overcome. But if it's, you know, a five, six point margin, yeah, I, I, I think, you know, you could see that working out. I mean, you know, even in 2016, an example I use is Jason Kander uh, lost the Missouri Senate race by, I think it was three points, uh, while Donald Trump was nearly carrying the state by 20 points. So you can't you can't get these these sort of splits. It just has to happen under unique circumstances. And I would argue that the Georgia Senate race may be one of those unique circumstances. No, fair enough. I mean, I think to my friend Ryan Gradusky's recent Substack, and uh, you know, Ryan's a friend who I follow for sort of kind of right leaning kind of polling horse race analysis. And his final Senate prediction for the map was actually fifty two forty seven one, with the Georgia runoff kind of being the thing. And as you said, I mean, it'll be very interesting. We'll see if the Senate's on the line at that point. You know, I mean, a Georgia Senate runoff with yeah. the Senate on the line. Where have we seen that before? Right? <laughs> was, oh it, my God! Literally less than I, two. I, <laughs> Go ahead. No, no, no. no. I, I, I was just going to say. The only thing I can remember about that Georgia Senate runoff was I remember I would, you know, the week before was obviously or, you know, 10 days before we were we were celebrating, you know, Christmas and New Year's. And I just remember going in and this was, you know, when COVID was having, you know, a a winter sort of peak in New York. uh, And, you know, obviously the vaccines hadn't been really while they were starting to get in the arms of Americans, they hadn't gotten to my arm yet. And I just remember going into the office and the office being completely quiet, sort of going into this flash studio for your listeners. A flash studio is essentially this room where only you enter and there's a camera and you look into the camera and just being like, what, what, what universe is this with a global pandemic in which the United States Senate is on the line and there's New Year's, but I'm not, (laughs) there's no New Year's celebration. So weird. This will be slightly less weird. Yeah, no. Uh, well, we can at least we can hope it'll be slightly less weird. But, I hope so. So let's let's conclude here in the fourth of the so-called Big Four swing states this cycle, which is the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, which forever was kind of fool's gold for Republicans. I mean, after George H. W. Bush won in 1988, a Republican presidential candidate did not win it again until Donald Trump broke through the so-called blue wall in the Rust Belt in 2016, and Pennsylvania has been a true nail biter of a of a state since then. So you've got a gubernatorial race between Josh Shapiro and Doug Mastriano, who, whose political profile is pro- probably, I think it would be polite to say, a little right of center of the, of the Pennsylvania state electorate. And then you have yeah. this Senate race between John Fetterman and Dr. Mehmet Oz. I think all of America saw that debate last week. That is certainly one debate that people will not be forgetting anytime soon. So what are you, what are you thinking and what are you seeing in Pennsylvania? 
uh, and I'm glad you called it a commonwealth because I once called it a state and uh, uh, my colleague uh, Yaakov Tapper very much uh, was not a fan of me calling it the state. It's one of, of, it's one, it's one of the four commonwealths along with Massachusetts, Kentucky, and Virginia. So fun fact for the American uh, civics and American history nerds out there. But go ahead, Harry. Yeah, I, I, look, if Arizona and especially Georgia are states in which the Republican gubernatorial candidates could carry across the finish line, the Republican Senate candidates, Pennsylvania is the opposite, right? Uh, Josh Shapiro, uh, who I believe... Uh, in his attorney general re-election in 2020, got the most votes of any candidate in Pennsylvania history, uh, is a strong, was a strong candidate from the outset, has consistently led in the polling. And I would be absolutely floored if he did not win over Doug Mastriano, who has had a slew of problems sort of uh, keep his campaign from getting off the ground. Uh, and I think the question ultimately is what happens in that Senate race? And I think that there are two factors in Pennsylvania, you know, when you're talking about the candidates individually, that sort of plague both of them, right? Uh, Mehmet Oz is someone who has had charges of carpetbagging le- levied against him, um, you know, not being an actual Pennsylvanian, uh, just coming in to run for that Senate seat. Uh, and John Fetterman, uh, rightly or wrongly, has uh, been sort of saddled with this stroke that he unfortunately had. Uh, earlier this cycle, just before the primary, uh, questions about whether his health uh, is too much uh, for him to actually carry out the job of United States Senator. Uh, that polling has sort of shifted. Uh, if you look at the New York Times polling, uh, for example, a more m- many more voters said that after the debate, although it was a small subsample than before that debate we were speaking about or you alluded to earlier. And then there's the whole question about whether the polls uh, will be right in Pennsylvania. You know, if out west the polling perhaps has underestimated Democrats more so than nationally uh, in Pennsylvania, you know, the polling has not exactly been awesome. Uh, the average final poll had Joe Biden up, I think, by five points in the state of Pennsylvania. He won it by one. Uh, if you look back in 2016, it was a fairly similar story with Hillary Clinton. And Pennsylvania is unique insofar as you have a number of different sort of trends that are going with or against each other. Uh, obviously, the Philadelphia suburbs, well-educated Philadelphia suburbs, have been increasingly democratic. Uh, you know, you look at a place like Chester County, for example, uh, while, you know, the coal belt um, or the coal counties in the northeast part of the state have been increasingly um, more Republican, as well as sort of what I would call southwest Pennsylvania. You know, if you look at a political map and they would say, oh, you know, Donald Trump, did really well among those Reagan Democrats in the uh, Pittsburgh suburbs and the Pittsburgh exurb. The fact of the matter was they were not Reagan Democrats. They voted for Walter Mondale. Uh, And so that's a region, you know, and you sort of just put it all together. And how much more vote can Republicans sort of ring out in that center of the state or in the northeast part of the state or in the southwest part of the state? And how much more vote can Democrats sort of get out of those Philadelphia suburbs? Can John Fetterman who has tried to have this working class appeal, can he help stem the tide of uh, these white working class voters going more Republican? It's a lot to be unlocked and a lot to be unanswered at this point. And Pennsylvania to me is arguably one of the more fascinating states. The only thing I'll say before I shut up is that, you know, on election night, will we have one of these situations again where that election day vote comes in very, very good for Mehmet Oz, and then all of a sudden those mail votes start to get counted perhaps later in the evening. Remember, it was Pennsylvania that ultimately put Joe Biden over the top. Pennsylvania could be the state besides Georgia 
that um, to be perfectly honest, all four of these states, these these races could go on for a while. So I'm not expecting to get very much sleep. Well, we'll see what happens. I mean, you know, if things start to really go downhill unexpectedly for, for for Republicans this final week, you know, we might start to see some interesting races in states like North Carolina, Wisconsin, and so forth. I, I personally don't see that happening, but Meh. yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I don't see that happening, but you know, for now, these really are the big four races. But Harry, what a thrill! You know, we're just about out of time for this particular episode, but thank you so much for joining this week, my friend. I really do appreciate it. I'm sorry I blathered on. Hopefully, your listeners will forgive me. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. My final number for the Senate is 5347. That is the number that I am thinking right now. What that means that Republicans hold their seats in Pennsylvania, Ohio, Wisconsin, and North Carolina, and then pick up seats in Nevada, Arizona, and Georgia. So to kind of go through the races that we were just discussing with Harry Enten, that's going to mean that Adam Laxalt wins in Nevada, Blake Masters wins in Arizona, and Herschel Walker wins in Georgia. You, you could probably sense when I was following up with Harry about the effect of the gubernatorial coattails in both Arizona when it comes to Carrie Lake and Georgia when it comes to Brian Kemp. I do not foresee scenarios in which split ticket voting of the magnitude that Democrats would need to win either the Arizona or Democrat seats actually transpires here. I guess if there's one of those two states where I could see it happening a little more, it's potentially the state of Arizona just because Mark Kelly is an incredibly well-funded incumbent. Raphael Warnock in Georgia has a pretty big war chest as well. Uh, In Pennsylvania, you know, I look, I thought Dr. Oz, it was basically a coin flip election until that debate. I mean, my God, I mean, if you guys did not go ahead and see that debate, I'm going to have an extremely difficult time basically encapsulating what it was. But it was just really, really, really painful to watch. And shame on the media, shame on the mainstream media for absolutely despicably covering up what is very clearly John Fetterman's far far, far from stellar cognitive capabilities right now in the aftermath of his stroke back in May. One final point that I'll just quickly make here. Look, we all wish John Fetterman a swift recovery from this stroke. He had the stroke four days before the primary, okay? He could have dropped out. I do think 5347 is a number that I'm going to go with with the Senate. We will see how far off I am. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm Josh Hammer. We'll see you next time.